I'm Grace. And I'm Linnea. And here on this podcast, each week we break down a different Canadian Heritage Minute. So Grace gets to tell me all about it, and then I get to learn with you, the viewers, listeners. Viewers, listeners, you know, they could be watching it. Yeah, exactly. I'd be, it'd be nerve-wracking. If, if I found out you were watching it, I'd be a little concerned, that'd actually. That'd, that'd be weird. <laughs> Where are they? Where They're in the walls. You? <laughs> but on this week's episode, we are introducing a new segment to yes. the Minute Women podcast, which we are calling the, the Sorry, Sorry segment, segment. <laughs> because we're human. And Canadians. And we improv a lot of this. Yes. And so we make mistakes. We do. So one really unique thing about this podcast that some of you might not really believe is true is that I, Linnea, honestly don't know what episode we're doing when I come into the studio. And I am genuinely impressed with how much she knows based on just like... I'm just no information. She I'm gets just, no prep. I'm here to amaze Grace. I am here with such a high advantage. <laughs> so sometimes that means that I haven't had time to really think about what Grace is talking about or make real life connections. So a little while ago, we did an episode on, and I might butcher this, Kenojuak Ashevek. Perfect. Kenojuak Ashevek. So we did an episode on her and we talked about her... Um, giving her art kind of selling her art and working with the Houstons yeah so James Archibald was her James Archibald Houston I should say was her art dealer right and so what I failed to realize and your mom made you realize and my mom (laughs) kind of aggressively told me that I was dumb this Uh, segment is really for her (laughs) this is is for my mom shout out to Lori shout out to Lori happy Uh, belated birthday happy belated birthday (laughs) (laughs) is that there is an art gallery in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, where I grew up, called the Houston North Gallery. Yeah. And it was actually a gallery that I used to walk by all the time when I was little, and they had little stone carvings in the window, and I thought they were <laughs> so cool. Uh, and that art gallery was actually owned by the Houston family. And so I know this art gallery. I remember this, but I didn't – I wasn't able to make the connection while I was talking to Grace like, about this. <laughs> yeah, and, like, did you ever meet them? Uh, yeah, so I met the son and his wife, and I don't know, my mom. That's crazy. My mom seems to think I met James and his wife, maybe, but I'm. I you don't remember. Like I don't remember. I was little, but I definitely remember going there and talking to the people in the shop and That's thinking so cool. all the stuff was really cool. So, is there any like of her work in that gallery, or I'm, was it just co-op or like it whatever? It was a lot of co-op stuff. I mean, there there may have been like cool. I that gallery doesn't exist anymore. It closed oh, okay. a couple of years ago when the family moved, but they yeah, did fair. live in Lunenburg for a while. That's so cool. And, yeah, so. it, it makes it's it's such a stereotype of like Canada, and I think especially <laughs> Atlantic Canada that you just kind of know everybody. Yeah, and so I can tell you a story about a woman from Nunavut, <laughs> and you're literally like two degrees, right? Two degrees of separation. Separation from her. So I did want to just add that into our story segment to say well, yeah. that <laughs> story, mom, for not remembering and not sounding as intelligent as I could have in the original podcast. <laughs> Yeah, every sorry segment has to be specifically yes. addressed to but someone. This is about Grace being knowledgeable. So No, not at all. Like I'm sure that I have made mistakes thus far. Right. Because we're just human. And so I mean, if if you do have any corrections, yes, please. One, don't be 
a dick about it. <laughs> but also, if you like DM us and are like, hey, I think you got this wrong. Yeah, or please whatever, let us know. we will totally add that to our story segment we if would. we feel like it's it's relevant and, and necessary for people to know. And not really mean. Yeah, like we don't like mean people. We're a happy little we're a happy little community here. Yeah. We don't need to we're rock nice, the boat too much. Nice little podcast. Yeah, we're a nice little podcast. All right. So okay. Grace, today, what new, are we doing today? New content. So unlike previous episodes of Minute Women, mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting if I don't tell you what minute we're doing okay. right off the bat. I'm just gonna jump into the content All and right. wait and see how long but I think I think you'll figure it you out I think I'll get it there'll be a name that you recognize and you're like oh this is the one we're doing today I hope so otherwise I'm gonna look really <laughs> dumb <laughs> so this could be a total failure uh but you know what live and learn you live know and we're, learn. We're, we're 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 learning just as much as the audience <laughs> exactly okay okay I'm ready so Annie Jameson was born and raised in Ireland and she was the daughter of Scottish emigrants her grandfather having arrived with her brothers in Ireland, they established a successful distillery and the Dublin Brewery. Jameson so Whiskey? We are talking about those Jamesons. Whoa. They are involved in today's story. Okay. During Annie's childhood, the potato blight struck. We're, we're back at the potatoes. We know about the potatoes. <laughs> but the Jameson family, living in a comfortable mansion with a moat, uh, was not immediately affected by the tragedy. Wait, a moat like? Like a moat. Like a castle? Like like we, we, dug, a, we dug a river? around our house shoot just in case those poor irish try and get our potatoes this is the last stronghold of strong good potatoes and we will defend them with our life and our moat that's insane okay Annie was renowned for her beauty and excellent singing voice, which brought in opportunities from conservatories and theaters. Annie had secured an offer from the legendary 18th century theater, the Convent Garden, which I've never really heard of. But it's, Go uh, Annie! Yeah, it's in, it's in continental Europe. I believe it's uh-huh. in Italy, which had recently become an opera-exclusive venue. So okay. during this period, there's this massive revival in opera, and opera is like pop music again. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Despite the growing pro- popularity of operas, though, the theater wasn't deemed a respectable career for a woman of her status. Oh. So theater, like she's too good for theater or she's not yeah. like, okay. So for a long time, theater is like people of a certain class associated with like sex work. Oh. Yeah. Because there okay. probably are connections to sex work. Yeah. But the theater is not a place for a respectable young lady, especially when they want to like get married and like carry on the family name and blah, blah, blah. However... The family, like her parents knew it would crush her when they were like, no, you can't go be in the theater. It was her dream. (laughs) It was her dream. She really wanted to do this and they didn't want to, yeah, they didn't want to disappoint her too much. So to soften the blow, they arranged for Annie to live with a respectable family of bakers, the De Renolis in Bologna, Italy. Oh, Bologna. It's Bologna. Or Bologna. Bologna? Bologna. It's not Bologna. It's not. I know like it's (laughs) Bolognese sauce. Oh, yeah. When you have, like, the pasta sauce with the meat in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bologna? We're going to go with Bologna. Yeah. Bologna? Bologna? Bologna. Bologna. If we got it wrong, let us know. Yeah, please. <laughs> and there she could continue her singing studies at the conservatory. Or conservatoire, the as conservatoire. it were. Oh, fancy. So Annie really liked living with this family, and she liked living in Italy. Okay. The family had a lot of relatives and friends that would visit as well. So it's this... 
big house and there's always people coming and going. And they're Italian. They're eating pasta and yeah. drinking wine. And, and if you're from Ireland and then you get to go to Italy, like I feel like that's a culture shock yeah. in a good way. In a very good way. You go from like, not that there's anything wrong with Ireland, but I yeah. feel like Italy is a lot more colorful. And oh, well, I was just going to say, when I think <laughs> of like, when I think of like history, if I think of like Ireland or like like Scotland or England even I think of yeah. it as all kind of gray but exactly. if you think of like Italy it's like red and orange yeah, and sunny like and happy yeah. yeah yeah so she's in Italy she's loving it <laughs> and she's introduced to this little boy uh Luigi who is <laughs> the grandson of the family the De Rinaldi family Luigi Luigi a baba de butch <laughs> That's my family slang for Italian. <laughs> if ever we need to say something in Italian or like, oh, we're having Italian tonight. We're like, ah, it doesn't mean anything. Okay. So Luigi's mother, uh, the daughter of the Rinaldi's family. Had... I didn't know that was a real name. I really thought Luigi was just like nope, that's a super re- silly. like. <laughs> that's Yeah. Wow. It's a shame that Mario was around and really (laughs) ruined that name for people. But yeah, Luigi is a real name. And unfortunately, his mother passed away shortly after his birth. So death number one. Yeah. So he's regularly visiting his grandparents and he is brought to visit his grandparents by his widower father, Giuseppe Marconi. Dun, 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 dun. Dun. Do you know what minute we're doing I know now? <laughs> so yeah, Giuseppe Marconi brings the son to visit the grandparents, and despite the protections that the uh-huh. Jameson family had kind of built up to protect Annie from end up doing anything disrespectful to the family, she falls in love with Giuseppe. Of course she does. Oh, with yes. Gi- wait, with Giuseppe? Not Luigi. Luigi's a little boy. Oh, okay. So she loves How- the dad. Who okay. is significantly older than I her. I was just going to say, though. <laughs> she could be, like, she's solidly between them as generations. Um, I didn't figure out. Ex- I think they're at least, like, 15 years apart in age. But that's, like, a common thread. We've already seen, like, yeah. Sir John A. Macdonald marry someone real younger than him. Jeepers. Yeah. Anyways. So she abandons her studies at the conservatory to return to Ireland. Oh, Ireland, Annie. And she asks her parents for permission to marry. Wow, brave girl. And the Jamesons were highly disapproving of Giuseppe. He was too old, he was a foreigner, and he was like a sloppy second, which mm. was evident by him having a young Italian son. Yeah. Annie's parents again vetoed their daughter's decision and began introducing her to like hordes of young, respectable <laughs> men. So people that they had essentially filtered through and they're like yeah Yeah. this is the person you should marry so they very quickly introduce her to society which is lots of cute irishmen yeah lots of cute irishmen that they think will make annie happy (laughs) and annie was a good daughter she entertained all of the company she met all the people that her parents wanted her to meet but in secret she continued to write and receive letters from giuseppe and as soon as annie came of age she set up a rendezvous point they, she went to Europe and they married and returned across the Alp, Alps as uh, Signora Marconi. What? I stole that line from a book, but <laughs> I love that. Annie Jameson returned across the Alps to Italy as Signora Marconi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, little Annie. So, have you figured out what minute we are doing, Lilea? I think I have. I think this is going to be, it's like Mr. Marconi and Newfoundland and ding, the, ding, ding. the telegraph thing. Yes. So, yeah, we're doing Guillermo Marconi. So, these are his okay. parents. This is the oh. story of how his parents meet. Oh. 
which I just thought was a cool story. Also, it means he's the grandson of Jameson's and Jameson Distillery. That's crazy. <laughs> which, yeah, it was like really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So in that Heritage Minute, it's essentially the invention of radio telegraphs. Yeah. And that little click, click, click. That Yeah. And so it's like a bunch of kids running around, essentially making fun of these guys trying to like build radio technology. Yeah. And then once they get it, they're like, come in, kids, listen, <laughs> listen to the click, click, click. And they're like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and they're like, it's coming from all the way over, over there. there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually went to Newfoundland this summer for the first time oh, okay. and was in St. John's and went to the to the lighthouse and like Signal Hill and like the Marconi yeah. uh, exhibit and stuff. Cool. So it was really cool. Yeah. I've never been to St. John's, Newfoundland. I've only yeah. been to the West Coast of okay. Newfoundland. Oh, it's the prettier. It's, it's really pretty. When I got there, they were like, it's the best yeah. coast. Yeah. To all, our, like, okay. to all <laughs> our Newfoundland friends, both coasts are really nice, but like the more like... I'd say like untouched nature yeah. side is the West yeah. Coast for sure. St. John's you watch is the city. Newfoundland tourism commercials yes. and they're always hanging laundry on cliffs for some reason. <laughs> it's the West Coast. That's the West Coast. <laughs> like we went to uh, Grossmore National Park yeah. and while we were there they have a little museum that's essentially a museum to fishing families yeah. and how the fisheries grew. And the house that is protected is like a time capsule it's, yeah. it's really interesting and my dad essentially my younger brother was like hey dad hold my coat and throws it at him and runs away and my dad's like okay and he went to the laundry line of the museum and just hung his coat and just walked away and I was like yes we're fulfilling my laundry dreams for a, for a Newfoundland vacation I love that there's uh, a really good 22 minute segment that's just like Newfoundland <laughs> cliffs beaches laundry like <laughs> that's one of my favorites it's skits. so true yeah. so we're still in italy yeah so we're still okay. in italy and now annie and giuseppe are married and they have two children together oh. one of which is guillermo Mar- marconi dun, 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 who was born on july 20th 1874 okay so he's the second child of the marriage and he had a very comfortable upbringing splitting his time uh between like florence and tuscany like they're all over europe he also briefly lived in bedford with his mother and older brother alfonso and so he learns to speak english fluently bedford bedford ireland I believe, okay. or bedford england one england. of the two okay so as Marconi is growing up, he's very interested in science. He's very interested in electricity in particular. And during his early attempts to establish wireless telegraphy, which is the technology that's displayed in the Heritage Minute, right. Marconi had constant support and help from his mother, but endless obstruction from his father. Aww. So his father is Daddy just not... issues. Yeah, dad does not approve of yeah. whatever he's getting up to. And his mom is like, I'll do whatever you need. To like help yeah. you do this. So Graham Bell has invented the telephone. Graham Bell has invented the telephone. So we have that kind of communication. So we're working on the like wireless yes. aspect. Yeah, exactly. So there's so, already communication, but he's working on like overseas communication. Yeah, like he's okay. particularly interested in how you can convert either telephone, but more feasibly telegraphs into right. a wireless communication right. system so there's no okay. radio yet but there's right. telephone but you right. need to have like a direct line essentially to that other person exactly yeah okay marconi never received a formal or public education i should say 
Instead, he learned chemistry, math, and physics at home through a series of private tutors okay. uh, that were hired for him by his parents, which I think is probably just the norm for wealthier right. families. So how do they, where is their income coming from, like the parents? Like, is mom cut off totally from the Jamesons? Um, I didn't get that, that vibe? sense. Yeah. I, but the dad is definitely like a property owner, so okay. he's kind of so just like a landed some... gentry type. Yeah, he's got some money. Yeah, so okay. he's got money. Marconi noted an important mentor was his professor, Vicenzo Rosa, a high school physics teacher. Rosa taught the 17-year-old Marconi the basics of physics as well as new theories on electricity. At the age of 18, he went back to Italy or Bologna. I've been avoiding saying that word so much. What word? Bologna. Oh, Bologna. The town. I don't want because if I got it wrong, I don't want to say it all the time. Oh, well. Um, And Marconi became acquainted with the university's uh, physicist, Augusto Righi. There's a lot of Italian names. That's okay. (laughs) Who had done research with Heinrich Hertz. Okay. Yeah, so the guy with electricity. Um, Yeah, Hertz is the, that's the scale, right? Yeah. Electricity is measured on. Yeah, exactly. So I know things. Yeah, exactly. You know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Linnea knows everything going into this. She's just playing really dumb. No. (laughs) <laughs> keep expectations low yeah, we keep, keep expectations keep low expectations on this podcast so, low. <laughs> <laughs> so Marconi attended the lectures at the university and was allowed to use the laboratory and the library Aww. while he went there his dreams are coming true yeah so he's like he's like I get to play with electricity and that's all I want <laughs> I genuinely didn't see like he was also interested in sports like it's just electricity <laughs> So from a young age, Marconi is interested in science, particularly electricity. In the early 1890s, during his late teens and early 20s, Marconi began to work on the idea of wireless telegraphy, which is the idea that telegraph messages could be sent and transmitted without connected wires, that which is, is the big yeah. limiting factor. And, but that is so wild. Like to be yeah, living absolutely. in a time where that doesn't exist, that type yeah. of technology is, to even think about technology now, like when you really think about it. Like, it's kind of crazy. So to think about it when there's nothing there, it's a totally blank canvas, and he's just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could do this thing? Now I'm going to try working towards doing this thing. Like, I just think that's such a... Yeah, and it's really only in the last two centuries at this point that there's even a real concrete notion that there are things that you cannot see. Right. Like, there is some notion of that, but it's very religious, I think. Yeah. But now they're like, oh, no, that's not a a one-off or that's not something unexplainable. There's so much happening around us that your senses can't pick up on. That's just crazy. And the need and desire to communicate over varying places over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, that sense that a world that once seemed so big is increasingly becoming smaller and smaller. And you can feel, like, the size of the world evaporating around them. And they're just like... Oh, wow. I could talk to someone thousands of miles away. Just crazy. Yeah. So the idea of an electric telegraph didn't necessarily originate with Marconi. Um, So other people had theorized that you could do this. Right. Uh, Many inventors have been exploring the idea of wireless telegraph, going so far as to even build multiple forms of electricity over 50 years or multiple systems to actually do it. In 1888, Heinrich Hertz demonstrated that one could produce and detect electromagnetic radiation, and that's what we now call a Hertzian wave. Um, Today, we just call them radio waves, though. So Hertz discovers 
radio waves, which is fundamental to radio technology. Exactly. <laughs> radio waves sparked great interest among the scientific community, but it was largely just viewed as like a scientific discovery, not as something that had potential to be a form of communication. Right, not something tangible, just a, a yeah, thing they're like, that exists. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I guess that's part of how the world works, but no one was looking at it as like a practical thing that you could make use of. Right. So Hertz's death in 1894 brought published reviews of his earlier discoveries, including a demonstration on the transmission and detection of radio waves by British physician or I say I keep saying physician, but it's physicist, (laughs) British physicist Oliver Lodge and an article about Hertz's work by Augusto Rihi. So that's the professor that Marconi is familiar with. It's through those articles that Marconi's interest developed even further in developing some kind of wireless telegraphy system. And that's how he's introduced to, like, Hertz's theories. By the age of 20, Marconi started conducting experiments into radio communication in his attic. (laughs) He expanded upon Hertz's earlier experiments and began using a coher, which is a primitive form of radio signal detector used in the earliest radio receivers based on the advice of Rihi and the experiments of other scientists. And so this is... So he's kind of standing on the shoulders of giants a little bit, but yeah. But is this more like, um, like... CB radios, like um, like more like walkie-talkie radios, or is this like radio listening to music radio? Like, is um, this communication back and forth radio, like a telephone, or is this so this is this is um, just broadcast? Okay, yes, you know way more lingo about radios than um, I do, but yeah, right now it's one-way communication. It's okay. just a sender and a receiver. Right. Okay. Um, throughout, like we'll talk about it, but throughout his career, he experiments with both, but right. initially it's just broadcast radios. Okay, cool. During the summer of 1894, he built a storm alarm made of a battery, a coher, and an electric bell, which went off when it picked up radio waves generated by lightning. That's cool. Which is super cool. He's just like, my bell's going off. (laughs) How many times do you think he electrocuted himself? (laughs) Good question. I don't know. He's just in his attic. It's like, (laughs) do you think he liked this? Not again. I don't know. Maybe. Late one night in December of 1894, Marconi successfully demonstrated a radio transmitter and receiver to his mother and set up. The setup was made of a bell ring. Essentially, it was set up so that a bell would ring on the other side of the room when he told it to. That's so cool. You would seem like a magician. You're like, I'm going to hit this button. There's nothing connecting the two. And when I hit it, that bell's going to ring. That's really cool. Yeah. And once he was able to demonstrate, like, look, I can do it. He had the support of his father. So his father's like coming around. Yeah. His father must be old now, man. Like, yeah, I I don't know exactly how old he is. I I mean, his parents aren't like a huge part of his life down the line, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. (laughs) But um, he now has the support of his father now that he's like, look, I made a bell ring. And he's like, oh, I believe in you, son. Um, and with the support of his father, Marconi now more seriously pursued his experiments, and he eventually developed a functional system with many components. So he manages to t- turn this like little experiment into this like big scientific thing. That's so cool. I think it's pretty evident at this point that I don't know that much about radio technology, so well, I'm just I'm just okay. gonna roll with the punches. <laughs> By the summer of 1895, his signals could be sent and picked up by one half mile, the maximum distance hypothesized by some physicists. Um, So there was this theory that essentially one half mile would be the maximum. But for a lot of people, they thought you could only go as far as you could see. Weird. Yeah. So like they thought radio (laughs) waves were essentially the same as like 
Like, if something didn't block it or obstruct it, it could continue going? Yeah, like, they knew that, I think, by that point, that the way you saw was light waves hitting your eye. Right. And so your eye is the best measure for how waves work. But obviously, there are light waves happening and traveling. Yeah. It's just your eye can't pick up on them. Weird. Yeah. So Science is weird. What a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Science is a bunch of dudes just being like, well, it was a bunch of dudes. Now, thankfully, we have something else in yeah. science. Um, just being like, huh. <laughs> this is what I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's all science is. Just uh, like. And then you electrocute yourself. And then you electrocute <laughs> yourself. <laughs> so at this point, his device only works up to one half mile, which is the hypothesized maximum distance but marconi discovered that you could increase the range of the device if you heighten the antenna so if you put the antenna higher then the signal is going to go farther because i guess it just radiates outwards i don't really know exactly how that works but the increased height of the antenna increased the range of his advice his device by two miles and now the signal could be sent over hills which is wow. great. <laughs> that was the other problem is that if you have any physical structures in the way, yeah. you're going to block the signal. The higher it goes, yeah. the less you have to be concerned about And you about know, those Europe, things. there's some hills there. <laughs> <laughs> Ever heard of the Alps? <laughs> By this point, Marconi began contacting Italian officials to get support for his work. So he wants government funding, essentially. Good but he him. felt like the Italians just didn't like respect him enough Um, like these guys they don't want to give me enough money so instead he started pursuing funding in england and he thought that would be more productive the italians were just busy making pasta you know (laughs) it's a time-consuming job pasta pizza leaning towers yeah they had a lot on their hands okay yeah (laughs) and sinking towns sinking towns yeah my dad won't go to venice because it's like sinking yeah he's just like i don't want to be there and just it happens to be the day that everything goes under true in 1896 he arrived in dover england the customs officer immediately opens his case and finds like all of this shit in there (laughs) he's like oh my god it's a bomb no but he was just like this is a lot of stuff i should call someone (laughs) and so the customs officer contacts the admiralty in london and but it all works out for the best because that means he immediately gets to go meet like oh, government cool. officials, and he meets with a guy named William Priest, uh, who is the chief electrical engineer of the British Post Office. Crap! Yeah, and so like, go Marconi, go! Just networking in the airport. Absolutely, I bet he planned everything. I he don't was know like, that's I'll true. make it look like a bomb, <laughs> and they won't kill me on sight. <laughs> I'm a white guy, <laughs> and this is during this time. Marconi decided that he should patent his system. Duh. Which he applied for on the 2nd of June, 1896, and it got the British patent number 12039 and is entitled Improvements in Transmitting Electric Impulses and Signals and in in Apparatus Thereof. Catchy title. (laughs) Wow. Go, Marconi, go. (laughs) That's what we wanted to call this podcast, actually. We wanted to call it what again? We wanted to call it, uh, obviously, Improvements in Transmitting Electrical Impulses and Signals and in Apparatus Thereof, or sorry, Therefore... (laughs) Duh. And that's why we had to change it, because we kept saying thereof. And Mark was like, let's just do Minute Women. And we were like, if you I'm, insist. I think it's a little more accurate to what you guys talk about. Ugh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Spotify doesn't allow you to have titles that long either. <laughs> um, so this patent is the first patent for a radio wave based communication system. 
exciting stuff. So now Marconi's in England, and over the course of the next year, so 96 to 97, Marconi continued to demonstrate and improve his system in Britain, which essentially, I mean, the improvements are largely like, look how I can increase the signal, which is kind of a fun way to improve something is when it's so measurable of like, it goes farther now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a very tangible goal that I can follow as a reader. <laughs> In March 1897, he managed to send Morse code signals six kilometers. So we're going from two miles to six kilometers. I didn't keep this consistent in units. I'm just realizing now. That's totally okay. But two, six kilometers is still more than two miles. Yeah, for sure. So two miles is like three point something kilometers, right? Maybe this is not a math. This is podcast. not a math podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> transmitting equipment. I said it once. I'll say it again. I don't do math. <laughs> this podcast is not about math. Transmitting equipment was then relocated to Brendown Fort on the Somerset coast. This increased the range of Marconi's device to 16 kilometers. So that's a now, huge jump. That's a big jump. Yeah. Priest was impressed by all of these accomplishments and had Marconi present uh, two very important lectures. Oh. So now he gets to go up on stage and be like, look what I've done. I am a genius I man. It. Yeah. Do you want me to make that bell ring? I can totally do it. Watch me. <laughs> yeah. I love, I wish Marconi, like, obviously radio technology is really important, but he totally could have gone the magician route. Right? And he has a great name for a mar- like a magician. The masterful Welcome. Marconi. The magnificent Marconi. The magnificent. Ah. With a cape and a little yeah. mustache. Not that Marconi messed up, but man, you messed up. <laughs> you missed an opportunity. And this is like the golden age of magic. This is like... like <laughs> Grace knows nothing. Harry Houdini times. Grace knows nothing about radios, but she knows a lot about magic. Hell yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of like... like vests and stuff that's what i envision magicians wear like they wear like vests i don't know <laughs> with lots of pockets and a lot of tricks oh yeah and little bunnies yeah i have a lot of doves at my house <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bunnies <laughs> so so marconi did not go into magic um but he did conduct further experiments uh this time for the italian government and the french government but he continues to work out of England. Very cool. In December 1898, the British Lightship Service authorized the establishment of wireless communications between South Foreland Lighthouse at Dover and East Goodwin Lightship, 12 miles uh, apart. Again, we're switching back to miles. But <laughs> um, yeah, so now I feel like people aren't just taking notice of like, oh, this is cool. It's like, oh, we could save lives with this. Yeah. Like we could have act. There's like a really important reason to have this, this technology. Yeah. Especially when obviously there's no way to have wired communication with a ship. Yeah. Um, we don't have to send smoke signals anymore. We can send Thank God radio waves. <laughs> On the 17th of March, 1899, the East Goodwin Lightship sent the first SOS message, a signal on behalf of the merchant vessel uh, called the El Bay, which had run aground on the Goodwin Sands. So it's the first time SOS is ever sent. Fun facts from Linnea time. (gasps) This is my favorite segment of the Minute Women podcast. (laughs) Okay, so there is this myth, this theory, this pop culture phenomenon, okay. if you will, that SOS stands for Save Our Souls. Oh yeah, I did think that. So this is actually not true. <gasps> so SOS yeah. is literally the two easiest letters in the Morse code alphabet to oh. type. And if you type it over and over and over again, it still stays in the same pattern. So you could start with O. You could do O-S-O-S-O-S-O-S. It's still going to lead. Because S is three clicks, right? So it's... 
Ugh, I actually don't know, but I think it, I think it's da da, and then a long one like da 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 kind of yeah cool um and so and I might be wrong on that part what it actually is but that makes so much more sense but it's yeah so it's not and why would we get creative with it and because the letters S O S if you were to write them in the sand they're the same upside down as they are right side up oh so yeah, it doesn't matter what way the message is it's very easy to recognize cool um so yeah fun fact yeah. sos does not mean save our souls it's just and i mean like that makes sense that people would think that like that's a good you, like, yeah word like, to put with it and i guess it like yeah. if it helps you remember it but originally but. sos was just put out as an emergency signal because it's very easy to communicate cool yeah i like that yeah it's also a Jonas Brothers song. It is a Jonas Brothers song. <laughs> <laughs> and moving on. And moving on. Jonas Brothers, come come on our podcast sometime. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so the first SOS message was then received by the radio operator at the South Foreland Lighthouse, who summoned the aid of the Ramsgate lifeboat. In 1899, Marconi was invited to America to share his work. He's crossing the ocean. America! Yep. Upon his return to England aboard the SS St. Paul, Marconi uh, installed wireless equipment with the help of his assistant. And this enabled the St. Paul to be the first ocean liner to announce its return via wireless when Marconi's Royal Needles Hotel radio station contacted her at 66 nautical miles off the English coast. That's very cool. So we're increasing distances. Now it can be established on like boats and stuff. It doesn't have to be a stationary thing. That's very cool. Yeah. So we're, we're making improvements. But Marconi was extremely ambitious and saw potential to go even further. He wanted Marconi. He's going to push this radio he's a wave. Dreamer. To, he's a dreamer. And a doer. <laughs> yeah, he did stuff. He's done stuff. <laughs> he's done stuff. Uh, not magic, but that's okay. Marconi. Grace is so disappointed. Like, it, just, it only just occurred to me now that he really could have taken his life in a different direction it's kind of like the plot of um the prestige where yeah you invent a cloning machine but you use it for magic yeah if I, you i've actually never seen the prestige if you haven't seen the prestige now you know <laughs> marconi began to investigate the feasibility of sending signals across the atlantic ocean in order to compete with the transatlantic tra- telegraph cables so Currently, at that time, I mean, if you wanted to send a telegraph, they actually had cables that were, like, sunk underneath the ocean, but way slower. And obviously, if anything were to happen to the cables, it's, like, a lot of labor to get it fixed. Yeah, super hard to replace. Yeah. So in October 1900, turn of the century, Marconi and his team of workers sailed for well, he's South. He's got a team now. Oh, we're he's got a team. We're passing assistant. We have a team. We have a team of I workers and scientists, him. and they are sailing to Massachusetts. <laughs> and this location was intended initially for the reception of the transatlantic signal. So oh. Newfoundland is not his first choice. We are in Wellfleet, Massachusetts initially. Wow. Uh, and there the team built two. So they built two exact replica stations, one in Poultou, uh, England. Again, probably saying that wrong. And the other one is 4,920 kilometers away in Massachusetts. Hmm. So by 1901, uh, the Poldu station is ready to start sending signals, and those signals are being received about 362 kilometers away. But wow. we haven't been able to reach all the way across the Atlantic. We still got a long ways to go. Okay. 
But Marconi theorizes that as long as he keeps adding power, eventually he'll be able to receive the signal. So the problem is just we just haven't been able to generate enough power to send Which it. Which kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think like yeah. he's he's right in that sense. Yeah. Um, but disaster strikes on September 17th dun, dun, dun. due to a, a strong gust of wind, which blew the antenna down in pole two, which then reduced it to just mangled wire. So the England station has been destroyed because of high winds. Oh, no. But Marconi is determined to not abandon the project entirely. So he replaces the pole two station with a more modest system that would allow just for one way transmission. So initially he's hoping that they could do two way, but he's like, you know what? I just need to get this message sent across the Atlantic. So we're going to do something more simple and it's just going to be one way transmissions. And then the receiver was moved to Signal Hill, Newfoundland, with the assistance. Canada. Yep, we're now at our we're uh, destination. Here. We made it, <laughs> but Newfoundland is still part of Britain at this time. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is before Newfoundland doesn't join until 1945. Right. I think, maybe something like that. So we're not. It's it's, but it's it's Canada in retrospect. Yeah. So it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. In um, hindsight. And uh, he it's does Canada. this because the British Prime Minister is giving him full assistance and. It would turn out to be wise because the one, the station in Massachusetts also falls down to due to high winds. Oh. So that one gets destroyed, but they had already moved, so it was fine. Right. So Marconi reaches Newfoundland on the 6th of December, 1901, and there he installs the receiver on the floor of the Diphtheria and Fever Hospital in St. John's, Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. So uh, they show them receiving it in, like, that tower that's on Signal Hill. Yeah. But it seems like he actually received it in a different building. Maybe that building just isn't there anymore, so you can't really show it. And then that know. building's more iconic, I guess. Um, I don't know. That's where in the that in that building that you see in the heritage moment. Yeah, that's it's where like the a, museum is and everything. Yeah, like and, that's and that, where all the info is. Yeah, and that building was significant for a reason. But it seems like the receiver was in a different building. Okay. But I don't think that's a big deal. Anyways. Anyways, moving um, along. Marconi expected this signal to be really weak, so he doesn't want to rely on a Morse code anchor and tape. So that's the thing that you always see where it's like yeah. that long. Yeah. So he essentially he needs the the signal needs to be stronger for that device to pick up okay. the, the message. And so rather than hook that up, Marconi opts to hook up a uh, more reliable telephone receiver. So okay. that's what you see in yeah. the minute when he's like holding it up to his ear. Yeah. Uh, His wire antenna was attached to a pole at ground level, and then depending on the weather, it would either be elevated using a hydrogen balloon or a kite. And because it's Newfoundland, the weather's crap, so they use a kite. (laughs) From the pole, a second wire fed from the main antenna through a window into the hospital, where it connected with the receiver and the earpiece. So we did receive it in the hospital. It must have just used to have been the hospital. Yeah, maybe that used to be the hospital. I'm not sure. The antenna was grounded by metal plates buried in the earth and then covered with zinc sheets. The significance of that, I do not know. <laughs> and Please, we will never know. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, if you know why Teach zinc us. sheets are so important. <laughs> Leave a comment. Yeah. <laughs> Marconi ironically had to tell Paul too to send the signal message using an Atlantic cable because he can't oh, send right. messages. So he has to use the thing that he's competing against to get the message oh, to right. England. And then they're like, OK, we're good to go. But then on December 12th, around 12.30 p.m., after several failed attempts, Marconi heard a faint click, click, click in the receiver. His assistant, Kemp, also got to listen before the message faded away. And messages were also received at approximately 1.10 and 2.20 that same day. 
Two days he later, he did it. He did it. Two days later, Marconi announced to the press that the first wireless telegraph had been sent and received across the Atlantic Ocean. He's a winner. So this is something I didn't realize. Okay. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not he actually did it. Oh. There's a lot of controversy around the fact that maybe this was not a successful transmission. Really? Yeah. So Tell the, me more, Grace. So the science is sound. The device he built is, like, functioning. But, for one, there's no physical record that it happened. So because he doesn't rely on an anchor and a tape... There's right. no physical evidence other than Marconi's own account, his assistant's account, and then the notes that he makes in his notebook. Right. And obviously they have a lot to benefit from saying that the technology worked. Right. Furthermore, the reception of the prearranged message was an S. So they had established in advance that he's going to send the letter S. Because it's an easy letter to send. Because it's an easy letter to send. But... That also means that it's not like he had to decipher a message. It's not like England came up with a message, right. sent it, and then he's like, oh, you did. You nailed it. They already knew what was going to be oh. sent. So that's another thing that people are like, eh. hmm. yeah. The attempt also took place during the day, and due to the radiation of ultraviolet sunlight, the ionosphere is weak and thus more likely to absorb the low frequency radio waves that reflect them so you can send messages longer distances at night okay and they sent it in the middle of the day and so the circumstances around the message being sent it's like okay so you knew what you were going to be sending and receiving um you don't have any physical evidence and not to mention you sent it during the worst time of day when it would have been the hardest to receive the message like it just seems like there's a lot against you um and right. marconi felt challenged by skeptics immediately of course so he was prepared to demonstrate it again this time he's going to have like a documented like test of it um so in february of 1902 on the ss philadelphia Oh, great ship, I guess. <laughs> Philly's a great place. So he's, he's on this ship, and the ship is sailing towards Great Britain. And so they decide to run the test again. So this time he's on a ship, I guess. I don't know why it's significant that they're on the ship specifically. But the result of the test uh, with the tape reception was just at 2,490 kilometers away. And the audio reception was 3,400 kilometers so the okay. ticker picked up at 2,490, and then just using the telephone, it picked up at 3,400. Okay. Um, these maximum distances were both achieved at night, and these tests were the first to show radio signals for medium wave and long wave transmissions travel farther at night than during the day. So now he has done it. So he's done it, um, but during the daytime, the signals could only be received about 1,100 kilometers away, which is less wow. than half the distance claimed earlier at Newfoundland. So it's just like, so when you do replicate the experiment during the day, you're like thousands of kilometers short right. of what you're saying. At night, it is feasible, but during the day, not really. So maybe. So we've got a lot of questions about it. Right. <laughs> but he has demonstrated that it is possible it's just like was it that experiment we don't know trying to he's just trying to make his dad happy and make money and make money (laughs) so aren't we all (laughs) because of all of this marconi had not fully confirmed the newfoundland claims although he did prove that radio signals could be sent 
for hundreds of kilometers, despite some scientists' earlier beliefs that you could limit it just to line of sight range. So we've still come very, very far from what was previously stated. He was still recognized for his accomplishments in the science community, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1909. Uh, He was the co-winner, but I don't remember who the other guy was. Well, not a Canadian. Not a Canadian. Not in a Canadian here. I mean, minute. Marconi's not a Canadian. No, but he's in a minute. He's in a minute. While Marconi did not stay long in Newfoundland, he did return to the island in 1904 to install a wireless station at Cape Race. And that station would be the one to receive the SOS message from the Titanic in 1912. Oh, wow. Yeah. Come, everything's coming together. It's all coming full circle. But he's, he's not done with Canada yet. So okay. in addition to all of Marconi's scientific innovations, he's a shrewd businessman. And Marconi was c- committed to establishing a large permanent station that would be able to transmit messages across the Atlantic on a consistent commercial basis. Okay. So that's the ultimate goal. Okay. Which meant that the station in North America needed to be relocated to a larger city center. Okay. He likely would have set up at Cape Cod had it not been for the intervention of William Smith, secretary of the Canadian Post Office. Smith negotiated with Canadian officials to entice Marconi to set up his operations in Canada, and Marconi was promised free use of the Canadian Railway between North Sydney and Montreal, and even Alexander Graham Bell offered Marconi the use of his private estate near Bedeck, Nova Scotia, while he settled. Been there. I've been there, too. I did archival work there. So we've both been to Bedeck. We've both seen the Alexander Graham Bell Museum and property. Yeah, and the Benbrea is the name of the... Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Gaelic um, for, I think, beautiful mountain or beautiful hills. One of the two. That's Cape Breton for you. That's right, Cape Breton for you. That's where I'm from. Love that little island. (laughs) Shout out to CB. (laughs) Shout out to CB. So after several meetings and visits, Marconi decides that he's going to found the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of Canada Limited, which is a subsidiary of the parent English company. And in 1902, he built a radio station at Table Head in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, which is very close to where I am from. Very close. Very close. <laughs> Not from Glace Bay. Wouldn't want that out there. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> It's so... The reason that Glace Bay is chosen is outside of Newfoundland, it's the farthest east. And Newfoundland is currently not part of Canada. So oh, right. it's the, at this point, it's the farthest east point in Canada. In December of that year, he transmitted Morse code messages from this station to his station in Cornwall. Communications between Glace Bay and Cornwall did prove to be unreliable and only possible after dark. So between 1905 and 1907, Marconi and his company built large new stations on both sides of the Atlantic. So still dealing with that issue of we can't send messages during the day. It's still pretty unreliable as well. So we're building new stations, trying to make them more powerful. The latter station became known locally as Marconi Towers. So these two stations at the time, were the two most powerful radio stations in the world. The technology was much like that used in the original experiments, but essentially just scaled up to gigantic proportions. So as long as you make it bigger, it will be better. (laughs) Transatlantic communication was successful now during both day and night, and regular commercial service between Marconi Towers and Clifton opened officially on October 17th, 1907. So now it's consistent enough that you can start making money off of it. Okay. Yeah. Like someday our podcast will be. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> That's the dream. Just a, a modest income is all I ask. 
<laughs> Initially, the stations at Marconi Towers and Clifton were limited to one way, uh, one way at a time transmissions, either east to west or west to east. Telegraphers called this a simplex system. However, as the technology got more uh, popular yeah. with the commercial audience, then business justified that the system could be upgraded to a simultaneous two-way or a duplex system by the addition of dedicated receiving stations at Letterfrack, Ireland, and Lewisburg, Nova Scotia. So, Ooh. yeah, now you can send them both ways Very at the cool. same time. Wow, how exciting. <laughs> wow, technology. <laughs> so duplex services began in 1913. In succeeding years, it was followed by competing services operated by other companies and countries spanning the oceans of the world and leading to the first worldwide wireless network. The station at Clifton was destroyed by Irish rebels in 1922. Oh, those Irish rebels. <laughs> and its service was taken over by a newer long wave station at Carnivore, Carnivron in Wales. Probably not Carnivore. Probably not Carnivore, uh, <laughs> Carnarvon, Carnarvon, but I also, because I had to write it in English because Welsh spelling is crazy. <laughs> Welsh is crazy. <laughs> the language, the spelling. Yeah, no, like it's the, the Welsh spelling has like an F in there, but it's not pronounced as yeah. an F. Anyways. And, and from the TV show, The Crown, I've learned. <laughs> oh yeah. That because in the th third season. He's got to go to Wales. Charles has to go to Wales so he can be like the Prince of Wales. And he has yeah. to give a whole speech in Welsh and he's never spoken Welsh before. And it, it's very much, at least in that time, I don't know what it's like now, but they very much portray it in the show is that uh, the people in Wales who speak Welsh, yeah. it's like very like culty. They're like, oh. you're a newcomer. Our language is hard on purpose. Like, we don't want you to learn. Oh. And so he was faced with a lot of backlash over that. Interesting. Yeah. Because well, it's a very difficult language to yeah. speak and learn. I mean, I don't want to um, disrespect our Welsh uh, audience. Clearly, they're very culty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said then, maybe not now. Maybe now, who knows? So in the 1920s, the advantages of short wave lengths for long distance radio communication were discovered and investigated systematically by Marconi. And in 1926, the long wave transatlantic service with its Cape Breton stations were shut down and replaced by short wave services out of London and Montreal. So short wave radio goes further. Okay. Um, so you can now have them that in doesn't real make city sense. centers. That short wave and long wave <laughs> are the opposites. <laughs> We're just going to roll with it. I think Marconi knows more about yeah. it than I do. Science, technology, yeah. not our strong suit. <laughs> so the services are and the receiving towers are dismantled and everything is moved to Montreal and London. So Marconi did... While he's building these systems, he lives in Cape Breton kind right. of like half time. So he is living in Canada partially and... He doesn't live there long, though, once the company is established. And a big reason he doesn't settle there is because he marries a young woman by the name of Be Beatrice O'Brien. She's an oh. Irish socialite. She's 11 years his junior. A beautiful trend on this podcast. Following after his daddy. <laughs> he likes the Irish. <laughs> he likes those young Irish ladies. Yeah, and she is not fond of living in Cape Breton. So oh. what a bitch. <laughs> hate her though we're not going to put too much of this on her because it seems like marconi 
t- like Marconi used to be before he was married a big part of social life in Cape Breton like he would go out to parties and he's playing piano he's playing them like operatic piano pieces Very and cool. stuff but as soon as he's married he basically seeks to enclose her from everybody oh. like he doesn't want her to mingle in society That's she's nice she's not allowed to walk around the town by herself that sounds like a good life yep he restricts her contacts essentially to just they live with another fam like another couple and so her contact is essentially limited to the wife of this other family and she's not allowed to see men especially jeepers yeah um so together okay marconi <laughs> yeah uh, so lost a lot of respect for our star here and it gets worse. Of course it does. <laughs> it gets so much worse. So, yeah, he's not a great husband. The The marriage really wasn't a happy one. And eventually they get divorced. So the marriage is annulled, excuse me, because okay. he's Catholic. So you can't get a divorce. Right. But the marriage is formally annulled in 1927. So he could remarry. In 1914, Marconi was made a senator in the Senate of the Kingdom of Italy, and he was appointed an honorary knight of the Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order in the United Kingdom. Wow. Uh, During the First World War, Italy joined the Allied side of the Mm -hmm. conflict, and Marconi was placed in charge of the Italian military's radio service. Mm -hmm. He attained the rank of lieutenant in the Royal Italian Army and of commander in the Regia Marina. Now, are they lieutenants or lieutenants? What's the difference? So, so Britain is a lieutenant. Oh. Like we have a lieutenant governor. Oh, we don't okay. have a lieutenant governor. Gotcha. So like lieutenant is like American and I don't know. Well, it's spelled with a T, so. <laughs> I don't know. They're, I don't know how they okay. pronounce it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I just, I had a thing with the, I like met and. <laughs> okay, this is thing really with a lieutenant. No, at a <laughs> event I was at last year, the lieutenant governor was there, and oh, I had to okay. introduce the lieutenant governor. And oh. so it's like so there's pages PTSD and pages about it. You have to like <laughs> yeah. read a book and meet a man beforehand who like talks Jeez. to you about how you address these people. So yes, a little bit of PTSD. <laughs> Just get right, Grace. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Marconi remarries. Uh, he remarried a woman by the name of Maria Cristina Bezzi Scali. <laughs> Which probably is not how you pronounce it. But she was 26 years younger than him. Wowza. Um, yeah, wowza. They had one daughter. For oh. unexplained reasons, Marconi left his entire fortune to his second wife and their only child. So he totally cuts his first wife and their children out of the will. To marry Jeepers. Maria, Marconi needed to be... Co- oh, sorry. So he did get the marriage annulled initially, and it wasn't a Catholic marriage. Oh. So okay. now he has to be confirmed in the Catholic faith to marry Maria and when he becomes confirmed he is like a devout member of the church and he personally introduced Pope Pius the 11th to radio technology in 1931 (laughs) and that's when the Pope has his first broadcast wow uh so this is the part where it gets worse this is the fun last chapter of his life okay Marconi was a huge fascist Oh, I love that. Love that for Marconi. (laughs) So Marconi joined the Italian fascist party in 1933. In 1930, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini appointed him president of the Royal Academy of Italy. No, thank you. These are bad people. This is bad. (laughs) Which made Marconi... Mark just turned down my mic because I got too loud because I was so angry. And this made Marconi a member of the fascist Grand Council. Shut up. So Marconi was a huge apologist for the Italian fascist ideology and actions, such as an attack by Italian forces in Ethiopia. 
In his lecture, he stated, I reclaim the honor of being the first fascist in the mm. field of radiotelegraphy, the first to acknowledge the utility of joining the electric rays in a bundle as Mussolini was the first in the political field to acknowledge the necessity of merging all the healthy energies of the country into a bundle for the greater greatness of Italy. You know, if I was his first wife, I wouldn't have wanted my kids <laughs> to have his fascist money yeah. anyway. Like, are, hey, are you a fascist? <laughs> I don't want to be around anymore. Yeah. Also, you kept me trapped in a house in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. <laughs> like, I've made some choices. <laughs> I think I'm just going to go. You can have the money. I don't care. Oh, God. That is. Yeah. So. Had such a strong start. I really like his mom. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back Annie, to the Jamesons. Annie is a cool lady. She just wanted to be a singer. She just wanted to be a singer. And now her son's a fascist. Uh so while Marconi is developing his technologies, he suffered nine heart attacks in the span of three years. That's what so you get maybe for being a fascist. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say for electrocuting yourself. Oh. But yeah, no, that too. You deserved it. Being a fascist who electrocuted himself in his early age. Yeah, heart attacks. Mm. So like a cat, nine nine <laughs> lives. Uh, on the ninth heart heart attack, Marconi died in Rome on the twentieth of July, nineteen thirty seven. Good. I Riddance. And I bet he had a big fascist funeral. There was a big Italian state <laughs> funeral. Yep. Of course. <laughs> As tribute, shops on the streets closed for a national mourning. And in Britain at 6 p.m. the next day, the time designated for the funeral, all BBC transmitters and wireless post office transmitters in the British Isles observed two minutes of silence for to, to honor him. Mm-hmm. Um, That's nice. He didn't deserve it. In the British post office also sent a message requesting that all broadcasting ships honor Marconi with two minutes of broadcasting silence as well. Mm. And such is the life of Guillermo Marconi. <laughs> That one was a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, that one was like kind of a plateau in terms like yeah. of uh, emotions and then just like off a cliff right Plummeted. at the end. Plummeting into yeah. the ocean. Well. Yeah. So Marconi was a fascist. He was a fascist who might have been a liar. Who might have been a liar. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, such as such as the the emotional burden we as minute women carry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Ruining your favorite heritage minutes. One by one. One by one. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's the end of this episode, guys. So thank you so much for tuning in again to Minute Women Podcast. Yeah, and make sure you subscribe, rate, review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. And you can follow us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and the same handle for our Facebook page. And now you can follow us on Twitter as well at the Minute Women. And you can keep up to date with all the fun things we're doing in between episodes. And you can see when we're posting our next episode. Exactly. And remember, every Wednesday is Minute Women Wednesday. So that's when you can check out our new material. Super Uh, fun. Thanks, guys. Bye.